Okay, good morning everyone and wonderful to be here, wonderful to be able to bring the word of God to you this morning and I pray again as always that the morning's message will be a blessing to you. We're continuing on our series on the, um, well it's part of our doctrinal series, we're, we're actually going through the statement of faith and we're still on the first point and that is the very source of our faith, the Bible and most specifically the King James Version of the Bible, why we use it. There are many people who use the King James Bible and they use it via tradition and tradition only. Well, what we've discovered and what is seen throughout history is that this version of the Bible has always been seen as the very Word of God for the English-speaking people. And as we're dealing with this, we're bringing an understanding of why we hold that very same position that there has to be one version and only one version of the Bible that can claim to be the very perfect word of the living God. Um, God does not stutter and he is not schizophrenic, nor does he say one thing one way and another thing another way through different versions and a multiplicity of versions. And we've come to see all those distinctions that have been coming forward. Today, we're going to be dealing with the fourth point, which is the proclamation of truth. So this morning is going to be a little bit of a journey as we look at the history of the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God from the time of the Lord right up until today. And we'll finish off on the last point on some of the changes that have been made to that. So I pray you'll be with me and that you'll bear with me, that you'll buckle up for the journey. I'm hoping that it's going to be an exciting one to go through. Mark 16 and verse 15 is the focus of the text. This is Jesus speaking and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the fundamental truths that are found within it. And we ask you, dear Lord, that you would be with us, that you would bear us up, dear Father, as on eagles' wings. And that as you do so, dear Father, we may glorify your name. And that as we decide to, as we glorify, dear Father, I pray that we would be encouraged in the word of truth. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth. This truth is that which is meant to underpin everything that we hold dear. We, we, we find there's arguments with regards to the Christian faith all over the world and, and we wonder why those arguments exist. They've always been there to a certain degree, but never in history have we had a time where the very underpinning of the Word of God has been removed from us. The Lord had desired that the truth of the gospel would be preached and shared to all the world, to all people. And any diluted version of that will not hammer home the truth of the gospel. And Jesus had made it really clear right from the beginning. But also right from the beginning, we see that there a war has been raging against the very word of God. A war that has the scriptures in the crosshairs. That that is the focus, that is the focal point of the devil, that is his desire to remove from the world that the world could live with a hope only satan himself can employ and that is a false hope for a long time i've desired to write a book 
And um, I've always had all these different ones, titles and stuff like that in my head. And one of those books that I wanted to write was one that I titled Word War Three. Word War Three. And the reason for that is understanding that the first word war was Satan in the garden creating doubt, the very doubt that led to the fall of mankind. That was all he needed to do. Just create doubt in the word of God. Hath God said? All he needed was that and that was more than enough for a replacement of the word of God of the authority of the scriptures to go from the scriptures to Eve. Eve would decide now whether or not God hath said. And she determined that maybe he didn't quite say. Maybe he didn't quite say. Maybe that's not true. The second word war was that of the Holy Roman Empire against the proclamation of the word of God during the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages were dark because there was no light of scripture in them. And this is the reason why. They hid the word of God. They hid it in a foreign language And they locked it up completely so the only authority was the person behind the pulpit. The third world word war is a different one altogether. The setting is the world. And the world itself setting its course to self-destruction. We see this occurring because insanity is prevailing over the world. When the word of God, the word of truth is set aside, it's replaced with a reprobate mind. And that reprobate mind would ultimately lead to a world that has gone literally insane. And we're seeing evidence of that unfolding before us today. Deception rules the airwaves. Violence is called for against those who would contradict the narrative and madness that cannot distinguish between reality and make-believe. They cannot distinguish between reality and make-believe. It was interesting, I got shared a video of... Uh, uh, Keanu Reeves is that his name? guy was in the Matrix he was talking to this young girl about the nature of the Matrix and as he's talking to her he's trying to explain what the Matrix is about and and he said it was was about a guy trying to bring forth reality to understand that there's what they were living in is a world of make-believe and he wanted to bring out reality and the young girl asked him, why? He goes, and he said, what do you mean, why, 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 what? Well, why, why do we need to believe reality? And Keanu was taken away by that completely, as only an actor could. He thought that was an awesome idea, as a man who lives in make-believe could. And this is what we're seeing today. We're seeing a world that sees everything as make-believe. The things that are happening before our eyes aren't really real. So can I ask you to stop throwing that ball up and down? It's a bit distracting. Okay, thank you. Um, So this is something that's fundamentally important and the truth of the Word of God is fundamentally important. But this distraction towards make-believe is is what seems to be uh, a real problem for us all. Christ's command to proclaim the truth still stands. And regardless of the obstacles of history, his disciples had risked everything that they could to save even a single soul, to sound an alarm to awaken those who were sleeping. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go. This is that proclamation. Go. Don't stay 
go, go into all the world. This is their work. This is what they desire to do. And this is what they set themselves out to do. The proclamation of truth was to be proclaimed. It was to be preached. It was to be audibly heard by them, by them for whom it was sent. They are to hear the word of God. They are to hear the gospel of Christ. Jesus gave this instruction to the 11 while they sat and they, and they dined here in this passage in the gospel of Mark. Um, and this was happened before they actually had risen, before he had actually ascended and risen to glory. Other than the 11, however, who had dined was also Paul. And Paul was one that the Bible says was born out of due time, similar to us. We're born out of due time. We didn't see the Saviour alive in his flesh. Paul also didn't see the Saviour alive in his flesh, but he did see the Saviour and he was called to be an apostle. He would be the one who would receive the letters to go out and to persecute the Christian church. This is when he was Saul of Tarsus and then became finally Paul on that Damascus road. Um, He was to share the Great Commission. Does anybody know what the Great Commission is? Do you know what the Great Commission is? And it's two parts of the Great Commission. It is. The Great Commission that we have, and Christians should know it, is that we are to preach the gospel and to make disciples of men. That is our work. That is our fundamental work as a church. The church has obfuscated, uh, has sort of, not obfuscated, no, they've, they've delegated that last one to what's called Bible colleges. And I mentioned in the, in the first sermon, I mentioned that Bible colleges don't exist in the scriptures. There's no fundamental premise for a Bible college. There's no emphasis on the Bible college in the Bible as there is in real life. We don't have these separate theological institutions in scripture. We've got a couple of references made to a school and a college. I think in total three references, one of them in the Old Testament, two of them I think in the New, or could be the, the other way around. That's about it. But to make this notion, to make this idea that Bible colleges are the training ground for pastors is false because the Bible teaches that it's the church's job to make disciples, to teach all nations. These come from a couple of passages in the Bible. One is from Matthew 28. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 28. You're in the Gospel of Mark. Turn back one book. Matthew chapter 28, right towards the end there. Again, I think probably the last paragraph that we have in the Gospel of Matthew. Similar to what we read in in Mark's account, Mark is probably, Mark 16 is probably the first part of it. This is the second part. Matthew 28 verse 19, Jesus saying, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. 
This is that effort of making disciples. We are to teach. We are to bring the word of God and we also are to teach, to train people up, to build them up and to strengthen them that they also may go forward and teach again. This same thing has repeated time and again, time and again over the last 2,000 years to teach and to preach the word of the living God. So there's two parts to this commission. One is preaching and the other is teaching. Each and every church in the world has this exact same charge. Every assembly of Christians have this as their distinct and particular purpose. And each are to continue to do so until when? Until he comes. Until he comes. We are to do so until he comes. But it's amazing what's happened. You have some churches, not all, that preach the gospel. But very few are teaching. Very few are making disciples. There are churches that have been around for 40, 50 years that have never yet actually created one single pastor, one missionary, one minister of the gospel of Christ. Uh, they, they, they say that the Moravians, you heard of the Moravians? The Moravians are those groups of Christians that focus their entire attention on missions. They actually believe that this small sect of Christians had sent out more missionaries into the world than the entire Protestant Reformation put together. Just them. They are the ones who you've heard the story of the young men who set themselves on a ship to go into the West Indies and they sold themselves as slaves that they would preach the gospel to the slaves in the West Indies. And as they left the shore, they cried out to the people, may the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. May the lamb receive the reward of his suffering. As they went out, this is the dedication of these individuals. Leaving all their earthly goods behind, they, 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 they left their PlayStation behind. Who would have thunk it? You know, they, they left YouTube behind. You know, they left all the social media and they said, no, it's not worth anything. What's worth everything? One soul. One soul. One soul to be saved with all the pathetic childish games that we sit there and endure, with all the ridiculous media that we said to suck our brains out of our heads that we want to sit there and get entertained by. I wonder how the Lord would look on this generation. I wonder how he would look at you, beloved. How would he look at us when we sit there wasting time doing childish things when we're supposed to be adults today? I'm not sure if he would take us seriously when we say we want to minister the gospel of Christ. Not when we're finding ourselves doing these things and we look at these Moravians who have gone out and sold themselves into slavery, sold themselves into those things just to save one soul. I wonder, I wonder. The day of Pentecost was the day that they gathered together and this was the beginning of the church this is a time that the Jews would celebrate as the time of Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. It occurred 50 days or seven weeks after the Passover. Jesus Christ was our Passover. He is the Passover lamb. Interesting that the very word Passover is an English word that's used by the Jews to celebrate the Passover. It was a word created by William Tyndale. Before William Tyndale employed that word, it was never used before. It was never known before. 
yet it's a word that's found only in a Protestant Bible that's continually used by the Jews today. Here we have, during this particular day, the Holy Ghost descending upon the people. Peter Peter, preached the word of God to the entire assembly and convicted the hearts of 3,000 souls who turned their lives to Christ, who turned to the Lord. And from that time forward, the Bible says there in Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Who added to the church, beloved? The Lord added to the church. The Lord added to the church. We go out and we preach the gospel. We plant, we water, but it's God that brings the increase. He alone can convert the heart. We can't. All we can do is share the gospel of hope. That's it. That's our responsibility. Not difficult, is it? Not difficult. Unlike the modern salesman, you don't have to close the deal. That's God's job, right? We have to simply share the hope. That's all our work is to do. This is the proclamation of truth. This was that gospel that has been handed down through the years. And this is that truth that convicted the hearts of man. This is the gospel that we are commanded to go and to proclaim. So what's stopping you from going? What's stopping you from growing? It's questions we need to be asking ourselves. The Bible actually says that in those days, the love of many will wax cold. Why? It says because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax cold. It's interesting, we spoke about this a little bit on Wednesday night. And I asked the question, what do you think it is that prevents us from sharing the gospel? Do you think sin has something to do with it? And the answer was an overwhelming yes. Just that is encouragement enough. Just to have a dozen or 20-odd people agree in one sitting that sin is that which prevents the sharing of the gospel, to me that is incredible encouragement. Because we don't have a church that's ignorant to our own faults. We all have our shortcomings. The pastor's no exception, beloved, and you know that. And we are to set those childish things aside and we are to move forward. Those things that distract us from the work of the living God, truly, do you think that they're honouring to the Lord? We need to set them aside and we need to do the work of the Lord. From the first century until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence, the Bible says. And it was first physical. Today it's cerebral. The first century battled the body to stop the mouths of man. This century battles the mind to distract the hearts of man. The first was physical. Today it's cerebral. It's in the mind. You've got to be asking yourself the question of why and what those things are that are distracting your minds. What's taking you away from the love of God and for the love of individuals that are your neighbours? How many of you share the gospel with your neighbour? How long have you lived there? How many of you share the gospel with a cousin, with a friend? How many of you made more Amway conversations trying to get them into a business than calling them to tell them about the gospel? How many of you have received a a phone call that was a spam and you actually decided to share the gospel with them? Sometimes they hang up quicker than you know, you know. It's worth it. That's That's a good ploy, you know definitely a good ploy each of you have a calling upon your life to go 
to proclaim the truth or to assist others in the proclamation of that same truth. There are many ways to support the gospel, beloved. One is to do so by mouth and by deed. The other is to do so with resources that make the gospel available to all people. And the other is to do so through prayer. You can be a prayer evangelist, beloved. You know you can do that. You can do that. The world needs you. They need you. You have life, but what does it say of your love for others when you're so unwilling to give up the vice that prevents you from sharing his love with them? We are to go. We are to go. That's the command. Just go. Go. You don't have to ask the question. Just go. You don't have to go around all these different churches asking for some support until you receive, you know, 82.5% and then you're ready to go. No, you just go. The Lord calls you to go. You go. Hudson Taylor didn't do that. He didn't walk around all the churches waiting to make sure that he's got just enough to potentially cover his support. No, he just went. He just went. And this is what we are to do. We are to go. We are to share the gospel of Christ. Go ye into all the world. Second point, Mark sixteen fifteen, And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It didn't take long that the gospel would not remain in Jerusalem. Jesus had commanded that it would be preached into all the world to every nation and tongue. The gospel was his salvation and it would be preached to all the world. And the means with which that would move into all the world is not always necessarily pleasant. Uh, Yet it is always with a purpose. It didn't take long for the Jews to take hold of the men, the main men that were in Jerusalem preaching the gospel. They incarcerated them, they beat them, and they commanded them not to preach in his name again. But this didn't discourage them, rather it encouraged them. And all the more they went out and they departed the council. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 41 to 42, the scripture tells us that they left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple... And in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that the more the gospel seemed to have been violently hindered, the more people were encouraged to preach it. It's almost like we've got nothing to lose. You know, it's like we've got nothing to lose. And this is how they felt. They felt that they had nothing to lose but to preach the gospel. Elements of the church went underground, yet at the same time, the voice of the gospel continued to be proclaimed through all the world. Saul of Tarsus was the one in chapter 8 who had the clothing of the individuals who had killed the first martyr, Stephen, chapter 7 in the book of Acts, were laid at Saul's feet. He was the one that gave the instruction to persecute the church. The Bible says that the the persecution that came upon the church at that time was so severe that it actually uh, made them disperse into all the nations teaching the gospel elsewhere rather than in Jerusalem. And what's fascinating is that we see Saul going on that road to Damascus to receive letters to persecute this way all the more in Acts chapter 9. But what else do we see in Acts chapter 9? We see the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, 
who would suffer many things, the Bible says, for his namesake, for the, the namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what else do we see? Immediately after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, we see peace coming upon the churches, telling you clearly that it was Saul's effort, Saul's effort alone that created such trouble for the churches. Acts 9.31 says, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied, were multiplied, continued to share the wonderful joy of the Lord simply because their main persecutor there was uh, converted and came to Christ. You want to share the gospel of Christ? Then pray for our leaders, beloved. You, know, you, want to, you want to make sure that the gospel continues to have free course? Pray for our leaders. Pray that the Lord would convert their hearts. doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter how evil you think they are. Pray for them. Pray for them. Love them enough to pray for them. We are not here to care about the things of this life. We are here to care about that which is eternal. There is a basic fundamental truth that I'm wanting to bring out here that from the beginning of the gospel there have been efforts to countervail the propagation of the proclamation. In other words, efforts that would take away the word of God from people's mouths. Back then it was by dominion. They would have dominion over the people in order to physically prevent the gospel from being shared. Today it's by diversion. Interestingly, the response to the violence was vigilance. Christianity flourished. But today's effort of diversion is indifference. That seems to be the result. Isn't it interesting? Satan seems to have more success today by diverting the minds of Christians to make them indifferent to the gospel than he did before when he physically attacked them, to physically close their mouths. Don't you think that's interesting? I think that's fascinating. This diversion tactic of the devil seems to work very well. And you would know better than anybody with regards to your own life on how the diversion that you've been entertaining yourselves with has actually made you indifferent, relatively speaking, to the gospel of Christ. The burning and the yearning and the desire for the gospel is not as strong as it might have been when you were once, when you were first saved. The zeal seems to have gone. The fire seems to have been quenched. Unlike Jeremiah, Jeremiah had the word of God as a fire in his bones. He could not contain himself. He had to preach the word of God. Paul said the same thing. It's the word of God that constraineth me. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel of Christ. How many of us should be feeling that way? We should all be feeling that way. The 12 apostles, including Paul, were persecuted by the world for the sake of Christ. 11 of them died at the hands of their persecutors. They were martyred for the preaching of the truth of Christ. John Fox records no less than 10 primitive persecutions of the church before there was a time of short rest. The last of these early trials was under Emperor Diocletian in 303 AD. Nine prior persecutions were not enough to extinguish the, extinguish the flame of the gospel. Nine deadly periods in near 300 years 
had still enough vitality to make Christianity still known to the highest office of the world empire. And that is Diocletian's, um, Diocletian's own emperor, empire. John Fox records Diocletian now setting himself to extinguish finally, extinguish completely the proclamation of the gospel for one last time. And he records it this way. The fatal day fixed upon to commence the bloody work was the 23rd of February, AD 303. That being the day in which the Terminalia was celebrated and on which the cruel pagans boasted they hoped to put a termination to Christianity. On the appointed day, the persecution began in Nicomedia, on the morning of which the, per- the prefect of that city repaired with a great number of officers, assistants to the church of the Christians, where, having forced open the doors, they seized upon all the sacred books and committed them to the flames. Interesting, isn't it? That the first directive, the first directive given to the soldiers, the first directive given to that prefix of the city is to burn the Bible. Not the people, the Bible, the word of God. They'd seen that as the priority power. That is the work that they had desired to move into and do and to undertake. Then the adopted son of Emperor Diocletian, by the name of Galerius, he charged himself with an effort that followed in the line and the footsteps of Nero. He burned the imperial palace. He burned the imperial palace and blamed it on who? (laughs) The Christians, just as Nero had done. If it worked before, maybe it'll work again. And indeed... Fox goes on saying many houses were then set on fire and whole Christian families perished in the flames and others had stones fastened about their necks and being tied together were driven into the sea. The persecution became general in all the Roman provinces but more particularly in the east and as it lasted and and as it lasted 10 years it is impossible to ascertain the numbers martyred or to enumerate the various modes of martyrdom. Racks, scourges, swords, daggers, crosses, poison and famine were made use of in various parts to dispatch the Christians. An invention was exhausted to devise tortures against such as had no crime, but thinking differently from the votaries of superstition. The city of Phrygia, consisting entirely of Christians, was burnt and all the inhabitants perished in the flames. This is history, beloved. This is actual history. Imagine the city of Sunbury burnt in flames simply because everybody, all the inhabitants were Christians. This is a tragic history of the beginning of Christianity, and yet it still grew. Yet it still grew. After the 10th ancient persecution of the church, the famed saying that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church seems to have held true, don't you think? Third point this morning, go ye into all the world and preach. Go ye into all the world and preach. Mark sixteen fifteen. he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. No doubt that by this stage this morning be wondering what this has got to do with the King James Bible. One of the things that it has mostly to do with the King James Bible is the history of the workings of Christ 
that's being done and Satan's work to disannul it. And his work has been always to stop the mouths of those who are proclaiming the truth. And if Satan had that desire to do so then, what makes us think that he would not have that desire to continue today? He continues that work today. You see, our silence means that the alarm that needs to be given to those who are not yet converted doesn't sound. They stay asleep. They remain asleep to their sin. They remain asleep thinking that their sin is not that severe that would cast them into hell. They, they find themselves ignorant of the fact that their sin condemns them just as Satan's sin to the flame. Hell, hell wasn't created for us but the devil and his angels. But our sin finds us in the same condemnation as the devil. And the people need to be awoken. They need to be awake to the truth of this. They need to get out of the sleep with which they are slumbered in. Joseph Elaine was one of the early Protestants whose sermon titled An Alarm to Unconverted Sinners rivals that of John Bax- of Richard Baxter's A Call to the Unconverted to Turn and Live or even that of Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Yet Elaine's alarm testifies that the work is of God. And he writes this, But O Lord, Thou canst pierce the heart of the sinner. I can only draw the bow at a venture. But do thou direct the arrow between the joints of the harness. Slay the sin and save the soul of the sinner that casts his eye on these pages. We are to simply share the hope of Christ. That's it. We are to share the hope of Christ. It's the Lord that will direct that arrow into their hearts, that will convert the soul. Satan knows this. That's why he desires to silence it. That's why he desires to silence it. God seemed to have worked evidently to pave the way for the proclamation of truth, that we may preach to all the world. He seems to have worked historically in this. Has anybody ever heard of the Pax Romana? The Pax Romana was an event that actually occurred two decades prior to the turn of the millennium into the AD period. And it was begun by Augustus. He was the first emperor and the Pax Romana would enable a peace to settle over the entire realm. Alexander the Great had changed the language of the culture a few centuries earlier. This young man that conquered the known world within 11 years. He changed the language of commerce. He changed the language of trade. He changed the language of philosophy. He changed the language of the person in the street when they're wanting to converse one with another. He never changed the culture, interestingly enough. All he did was unify the language. And we have the New Testament, interestingly, written in the language of all the people of the known world at that time. And that is the Koine Greek, the common Greek language. Not the classical Greek, it's a different Greek. The simple Greek. The Greek, the vulgar tongue of the people. In other words, in their own tongue that they could commerce with. And they could speak. This world was united under that language and the proclamation of the truth of the gospel was able to have a free course fairly rapidly into all those nations. At the speed at which it would travel to the known world was given even greater impetus in the first century due to two things. One was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. 
The fact that travel would no longer be encumbered by robbers and by those murderers who would come and take what you possess and leave you in the streets. No, there was a peace over the land and that was enforced by the Roman soldiers. But the second thing was the establishment of what we Italians are best known for. No, not pizzas. (laughs) Not spaghetti, all right? Not Napoli sauce, nothing like that. (coughs) Roads. Roads. We were best known for roads. If it was a Roman that was building our roads, we'd have no potholes. But no, we've got Aussies building roads. Now you've got potholes. Need Romans. Italians need to be out there. Anyway. It was this that actually enabled the gospel to move into all these places and all these nations so quickly. All roads lead to Rome, they say, and indeed they did. They were built in order to move directly to the capital of the empire. The gospel, therefore, had its free course and the proclamation of the truth had both its commendation, however, it also had its contempt. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And Christians trusted in doing so from that time on. So, during this particular time in Roman history, we have uh, an event that occurred roughly around 300 AD called the Edict of Toleration. That was given by Galerius. He was one of the persecutors of the church, but he also, at the end of his life, enabled the Edict of Toleration in 311 AD. That was simply to tolerate Christians, not to persecute them anymore, to lift the persecution and simply then to tolerate them. After that came Constantine's Edict of Milan. That actually happened only two years later. No, Constantine did not make Christianity or Roman Catholicism the state religion. That was not Constantine, beloved. That was not Constantine. Constantine only enacted the Edict of Milan. That was to bless those Christians, to be a benevolent um, hand for those Christians, to lift them up. And it was Constantine that indeed put the bishops of Rome into high office, put them in positions of authority, put them into positions of power, setting the scene for what would later become the papal authority that would rule the world basically to this very day. After this, it was not until 380 AD under the Edict of Thessalonica by Emperor Theodosius that Roman Catholicism became the state religion. It became sanctioned by the state as the religion of the state. Now we move from a time when paganism itself was to be the overarching religion and nobody was allowed to countervail that paganism. Now that paganism was replaced by Roman Catholicism and that was exclusive. No other religion would, would be allowed to take its place. And so they absorbed all these other religions into what became Roman Catholicism. What was also interesting at this particular time was Satan evidently seeing that violence in the name of pagan gods did not silence the gospel. Perhaps murder in the name of the Almighty would. In speaking to his disciples, Jesus foretold this very same thing. He said in John 16 too, Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And this is exactly what was done by Rome. 
They were killing Christians in the name of God. And this is entering into the period known as the Dark Ages. John Fox again gives a record of the time. He says, We come now to a period when persecution under the guise of Christianity committed more enormities than ever disgraced the annals of paganism. Disregarding the maxims and the spirit of the gospel, the papal church, arming herself with the power of the sword, vexed the church of God and wasted it for several centuries, a period most appropriately termed in history the Dark Ages. The kings of the earth gave their power to the beast and submitted to be trodden on by the miserable vermin that often filled the papal chair. So instead that under one pope, one pope murdered more Christians than all the, the, the pagan emperors put together. Under one pope, one single pope. This is the blood of the martyrs. David Teams in his biography of William Tyndale notes that the Catholic Church governed everything. He said the Catholic Church governed birth, marriage, death, sex and eating made rules for, for law and medicine, gave philosophy and scholarship to subject to their subject matter. It taught the faithful how to spend their money, how to sweat their tithe, what to believe, what to think. Culture grew within and around the church. She was the watchful parent and membership was not optional. Barbara Truckman, in her book, A Distant Mirror, spoke of the same membership in papal power, saying this, quote, It was not a matter of choice, it was compulsory and without alternative, which gave it a hold not easily dislodged. And this is the reality, this is the reality. It was very difficult to dislodge the papal powers and the Roman Catholic institution. The system could rule without question only as long as ignorance of this book continued. As long as ignorance of this book continued, they could continue to rule. And so ignorant were the people of the book, because it was locked up in, a, in an extinct language, that not even the priests knew what was in the Bible. A gentleman by the name of John Hooper, who was a fellow student of William Tyndale, um, he conducted a survey of 311 members of the clergy, and this is the results that he found. He said nine priests did not know there were ten commandments. Thirty-three had no clue where they were in the Bible. Most of them suggested the New Testament. Ten could not recite the Lord's Prayer and thirty did not know that Jesus had said it in the first place. Interesting, isn't it? The priests didn't even know the Word of God. You ask even a priest today about the Scriptures. There was a, a lady who... Um, who went to Heritage Baptist Church in Ballarat and, um, and a wonderful church there. Brother, Brother Steve Shaw is the pastor there and she came from Roman Catholicism and she said to her priest, um, I want to study the Bible. And he said, you want to study the Bible? He said, yeah, I, I, want, to, I want to study the Bible. And I was, oh, okay. Um, we don't do that here. Um, Baptists, I understand Baptists. Baptists study the Bible. I think there's a Baptist church here in Ballarat. So she left the Catholic Church and went to Heritage Baptist Church to study the Bible. Should that surprise us? Should that surprise us? During the time of the popes, the Bible was not permitted to be translated into the vulgar tongue of the people. In other words, the common tongue, common language. It remained locked away in the ancient Latin. 
The belief of the Roman Catholic Church was that the Latin was the chosen language of God. Interesting, they don't agree with translations today, but unless it's Latin. Any attempt at translation into a language of the common people was a front to God himself. This is interesting. During the life of the Lord Chancellor, the evil Lord Chancellor Thomas More, the language of philosophy was Latin. But when one chose to use profanities, they did that in English. Might give you a little bit of an idea onto why they were so upset about the idea of God's word being translated into English when they would only use English to swear with. The gospel, however, was to go into all the world. John Wycliffe made the first genuine attempt to translate the Bible into English. His objection to Roman Catholic doctrines infuriated the Roman Catholic Church and he died, however, of a stroke a couple of years later, which was probably just as well because if he didn't die of a stroke a couple of years later, he would have been burnt to the flames. He would have been committed to the flames. In fact, so angry was the papal church at John Wycliffe and so upset were they at his doctrines and the, burn, and the creation of an English translation that 40 years after the death of John Wycliffe, they eventually still burned him at the stake. In the most bizarre little ceremony in 1428, his body, or what was left of his body, was exhumed and marched around the town of Lutterworth. He was defrocked, then turned over to the secular authorities for execution. Been dead for 40 years, right? His ashes were then cast into the River Swift in Lutterworth near his old church. And the saying went forth this way. As the swift bear them, about the ashes, as the swift bear them into the Severn, and the Severn into the narrow seas, and they again into the oceans. Thus the ashes of Wycliffe is an emblem of his doctrine, which is now dispersed all over the world. How incredible is that? You know, the Lord has, there's a certain irony in these things, don't you think? Soon enough, the word of God and the language of all the people of the world will become a reality. And indeed, the gospel will go into all the world. Last point this morning. Preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It was William Tyndale who would have the greatest impact, the greatest soul impact on the English Bible. It would be William Tyndale whose prose, whose rhythm, whose music, whose creation of words, whose whose economic use of words would be so fundamental to our translation that we have today. Your New Testament that you have today in the King James Bible is still 90% the words of Tyndale. And he was the one who was charged with, not charged with necessarily, he created words that would so fit exactly what the Lord would have put forward. The Oxford English Dictionary accounts about 800 words invented basically created by William Tyndale some of those are this Passover is William Tyndale's words scapegoat is his word taskmaster two-edged viper is his word whoremonger writing writing table yoke fellow impure incarnate infatuate stiff-necked is his 
term. Tribute money, uproar, brotherly, busybody, castaway, network. You thought it was a modern word. No, it's Tyndale's word. Tyndale created that word. Complainer, swaddling clothes, handbreadth, birthright, and so on. These are Tyndale's words. More than 800 of them are listed in, in the Oxford English Dictionary and attributed to William Tyndale as the first mention of them. His desire was for the perfect word in both meaning and sense and music. Music. We'll talk a lot more about that when I get to the last point of this sermon series in the permanence of truth. What makes the King James Bible stand out among every other version in the world? Why is it that the King James Bible leads itself so well to memorising? It's not because it hasn't been changed. It's simply because it just does so. There's a rhythm to it. There's a, there's a beat to it, you know. Before the cock crow twice, thou shalt deny me thrice. Simple phrases that have been put together so wonderfully well that only a, a man who is, well, in somewhat moved by the Holy Spirit to actually frame those words. I've noticed the same sort of thing when I'm writing my sermons. I, I failed English at school, right? And I didn't do year 12 at school because I knew I was going to flunk. So I didn't bother doing it. I thought, what put in all this work if I'm going to... Because back then, if you failed English, you failed Year 12, you'd have to do it again. Now, I don't, I don't think there's a subject that you can't fail that you still don't get promoted. But anyway, back then, if you failed English, you failed Year 12, you'd have to do it again. A friend of mine did that. I wasn't going to suffer that. I hated school. <laughs> so I quit. I quit. But I found myself, in writing sermons, I found myself trying to make sure that I'm, that I'm finding the right words, trying to use a, a, a... I wanted to learn to be a wordsmith. Um, there's a number of preachers that I'm very, very fond of who are wordsmiths. They, they have the ability of using words that, that, that log in the memory, and I think William Tyndale was a wonderful example of that. There are two ways that the modern versions take away the gospel. Two ways they remove the good news and silence the alarm. One way is to delete complete verses. The other way is to render them to a footnote. Both ways they create doubt in the gospel and silence the proclamation. Beloved, I want you to think of what damage is worse. Of all the persecutions that we can testify to against those who believe the gospel, I want you to think about the harm that is done to those we never hear it. We often look at the outward stuff. We look at Christians and we feel sorry for them because they're being persecuted physically. But I want you to think about the individuals who don't hear the gospel, who are never awoken, who are never awoken. They're trapped in a burning building in flames and they're still not woken up. They're not even a firebrand plucked out of the fire. They'll just be consumed and that for all eternity. What is greater harm? Is it to the church? No, the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The church is a force that is knocking against the gates of hell. It's not the gates of hell coming against the church. It's the church coming against the gates of hell. It's an active force that we are to do when we proclaim the gospel of Christ. The greatest harm that's being done is us walking by all these sinners 
and not sharing the truth of the gospel to them. And modern translations have done violence in just this way. They have taken away the words of the living God and they've changed them. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We'll go through a string of, just a short string of verses here. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11. Matthew 18, verse 11. It says there, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. What a wonderful passage. Purpose statement. The entire purpose statement of the Son of Man, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it's deleted in the NIV, the NASB, the ESV, the Good News Bible, the RSV, the NRSV, all of them. It's deleted in the footnotes of the New King James Version. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 24. Mark chapter 10, verse 24. Matthew, Mark. Verse 24, beautiful verse this one. It says there, And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answereth again, and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Simple, isn't it? Can understand our holding on to our wealth and our desire to hold on to our wealth will make it very difficult to enter into the kingdom of God. However, for them, the trust in riches is deleted in the NIV, the NASB, the ESV, the Bad News Bible, the RSV, the NRSV, all of them, and it's deleted in the footnotes of the King James Version. Therefore, the text reads, Children, how hard is it to enter into the kingdom of God? With an exclamation mark. Exclamation mark is still there in the NIV, the NASB, the New Living Translation, the Bad News Bible, the ESV. How hard is it to enter into the kingdom of God? Beloved, is it hard to enter into the kingdom of God? No, it's not hard at all. But it is hard for them to trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. That's been removed from the modern translations. Why? Why? When it's it's an actual untruth... When we know that it is an untruth, it's not, it's not just that they can't find the evidence for it or they think that those words were added. The fact of the matter is, it is an untruth. It's wrong. It's false. It's not hard to enter into the kingdom of God. We hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and we enter in by faith and faith alone. It doesn't come down to how many doors we knock on. It doesn't come down to how many rosary beads we count. It doesn't come down to wearing a brown shawl when we die. It doesn't come down to being in the right place at the right time. It doesn't come down to anything like that. It comes down to simple faith. Do we believe the gospel? Turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. Part of the Minor Prophets, if you're in Matthew, just go backwards about five books, you'll get to Zechariah. It's a decent size volume, that one, even as a Minor Prophet. Zechariah in chapter 13. 
And verse 6, interesting work and interesting words here. It says, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is long held as a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as the true husbandman. This is the one who had come to claim his harvest and the wounds that are inflicted by the house of Israel, who he came to save. But you'd never think of that again if you ever read it in the NIV. If someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? Or the NASB, what are these wounds between your arms? Or the New Living Translation, what about those wounds on your chest? Or perhaps the English Standard Version, the ESV, very modern today, very current today, a lot of people holding that as authoritative. What are these wounds on your back? Have we got your body, your arms, your chest, your back? Oh, the message. So where would you get that black eye? I wish I was joking. This is the message translation. So where would you get that black eye? To which the response in the Message Bible is... I ran into a door at a friend's house. No, I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I am not joking. And I know individuals who hold to that very version. I ran into a door at a friend's house. Well, we have all these Bibles and they can't even agree on where the wounds are. I mean, how? You wouldn't have a hope of relating it to Christ who himself claimed of the prophets, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. They are they which testify of me. Now whether you believe that that passage in Zechariah speaks of Christ or not, the vacuous claim that there is no real difference between these translations is utter foolishness and being blinded by our own lusts and our own preference to idolise our own version that we choose for ourselves. This is something that's interesting, just as a side note. I've been told that holding to the King James Bible is, authority, is, is idolatry. Now, this confuses what idolatry means. Idolatry is picking and choosing which God you prefer, not accepting the only one that is. My personal preference wasn't initially this book, it was the New International Version. I thought it was nice and eclectic and fitted all people. And then my personal preference changed to the New King James Bible. And then I was convicted by the differences between the New King James and the King James Bible, continually diluting Christ. It was only that it was diluting Christ, that was all that I needed. And I just I couldn't stomach it anymore. No, no. Idolatry is holding on to a version you prefer, not holding on to the one that is absolute regardless of your own personal preferences, acknowledging which one is the word of God. I'm still concerned, however. I'm concerned. I'm concerned of these people. I'm concerned. I think, I think, about, I think about a father with a child and I, and I think about a desire to, to save that child. You might think of that child having... Uh, uh, 
standing on the edge of a cliff and doesn't know it. You might think of the child in a, in a burning house and doesn't know it. You might think of that child with an explosive device attached to him that can go off at any moment and doesn't know it. And all I want is clear and precise instructions given to her that she may be saved. And I think of myself wanting to give that instruction because I'm not available at that time. I'm not there at that time, yet I know that this is going to happen. And I think of giving that instruction to a friend, to someone who I trust, that they may relay exactly my instructions, my clear instructions on how to diffuse that, that device. And then that individual decides to come up with his own ideas. Oh, I don't want to say that. That might offend the little girl, you know. And yet it's the only way she can be saved. And I think of how angry God would be at all these false prophets who have made merchandise of the faith and has seen all these people now not able to hear the alarm of the gospel. And I'm concerned. And I'm, I'm greatly troubled that we continue to excuse the idea that somehow... Um, all these versions are the same when we don't even study the issue. We don't even look at comparing one version with another and think they can't be the same. Elise was sharing something with me this morning with regards to, what was it, Proverbs? Proverbs 25, verse 23. It's interesting. Turn there for a second. Proverbs chapter 25. Do you remember what it, what it was in the... New King James. Somebody got a New King James? No, you don't want to even put up your hand, do you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is what it says in the Bible. Proverbs 25, verse 23 says, it's a simple proverb. The north wind driveth away rain, so doth an angry countenance a backbiting tongue. In other words... Just as the north wind drives away the rain, so does an angry countenance drive away a backbiting tongue. Somebody that wants to gossip to you, your, your demeanour should silence them. Right? That's what that means. What does it say in the New King James? The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. So in the New King James it says, doesn't drive it away, the, new, the north wind brings it forth. And so does a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. In other words, the idea that a backbiting tongue naturally results in somebody having an angry countenance. Is that true? Well, we know that that's physically not true. People love gossip. Generally speaking, people accept gossip. It doesn't always bring about an angry countenance. But an angry countenance will dissuade the backbiting tongue, will hold back the gossip. Uh, that was my old Bible the New King James. It says the opposite. How do we grow, beloved, if we don't have the perfect word of God? Jesus says, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Christians and even most pastors today no longer care about the gospel. All they care about is protecting what they have. They've lost their first love. Why? Because they no longer believe they have a perfect preserved proclamation of the truth but you do you do so will you therefore go 
Will you go? Will you add to the silence, beloved, or will you make a decision today to set aside your distractions and begin to sound the alarm? He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for this word. We thank you, Father, for the word of God. And we ask you, dear God, that you would do a work within each of our lives. Convict us, dear Father, of our own sin. Convict us, dear Father, of our own apathy. Convict us, dear Father, in every way respecting the diversions that we have allowed to fester within our lives, to be built up within our lives. And bring to us, dear Father, in every way a determination to set those things aside, that as we have matured and as we have grown, that we would set aside childish things and that we may instead replace it with the everlasting gospel of Christ, that we may come to save that which is lost, that we may continue to do the work, the very work that you came to secure. I ask and pray to your Father, bless this congregation and help them to grow in the knowledge and the love of Christ and to proclaim this truth ongoing until the time you come again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.